Section 9 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 3, by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 3, Part 2. 14. Some Anabaptists in the present age mistake some indescribable sort of frenzied excess for the regeneration of the spirit, holding that the children of God are restored to a state of innocence, and therefore need give themselves no anxiety about curbing the lust of the flesh, that they have the spirit for their guide, and under his agency never err. It would be incredible that the human mind could proceed to such insanity, did they not openly and exultingly give utterance to their dogma. It is indeed monstrous, and yet it is just, that those who have resolved to turn the word of God into a lie should thus be punished for their blasphemous audacity. Is it indeed true that all distinction between base and honorable, just and unjust, good and evil, virtue and vice, is abolished? The distinction, they say, is from the curse of the old Adam, and from this we are exempted by Christ. There will be no difference, then, between whoredom and chastity, sincerity and craft, truth and falsehood, justice and robbery. Away with vain fear, they say. The Spirit will not bid you to do anything that is wrong, provided you sincerely and boldly leave yourself to his agency. Who is not amazed at such monstrous doctrines? and yet this philosophy is popular with those who, blinded by insane lusts, have thrown off common sense. But what kind of Christ, pray, do they fabricate? What kind of spirit do they belch forth? We acknowledge one Christ, and his one spirit, whom the prophets foretold, and the gospel proclaims as actually manifested, but we hear nothing of this kind respecting him. That spirit is not the patron of murder, adultery, drunkenness, pride, contention, avarice, and fraud, but the author of love, chastity, sobriety, modesty, peace, moderation, and truth. He is not a spirit of giddiness, rushing rashly and precipitately without regard to right and wrong, but full of wisdom and understanding, by which he can duly distinguish between justice and injustice. He instigates not to lawless and unrestrained licentiousness, but, discriminating between lawful and unlawful, teaches temperance and moderation. But why dwell longer in refuting that brutish frenzy? To Christians the Spirit of the Lord is not a turbulent phantom, which they themselves have produced by dreaming, or received ready-made by others. But they religiously seek the knowledge of Him from Scripture, where two things are taught concerning Him. First, that he is given to us for sanctification, that he may purge us from all iniquity and defilement, and bring us to the obedience of divine righteousness, an obedience which cannot exist unless the lusts to which these men would give loose reins are tamed and subdued. Secondly, that though purged by his sanctification, we are still beset by many vices and much weakness, so long as we are enclosed in the prison of the body. Thus it is, that placed at a great distance from perfection, we must always be endeavoring to make some progress, and daily struggling with the evil by which we are entangled. Hence, too, it follows that, shaking off sloth and security, 
we must be intently vigilant, so as not to be taken unawares in the snares of our flesh, unless, indeed, we presume to think that we have made greater progress than the apostle, who was buffeted by a messenger of Satan, in order that his strength might be perfected in weakness, and who gives in his own person a true, not a fictitious, representation of the strife between the spirit and the flesh. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 and 9, Romans 7, verse 6. 15. The Apostle, in his description of repentance, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 2, enumerates seven causes, effects, or parts belonging to it, and that on the best grounds. These are carefulness, excuse, indignation, fear, desire, zeal, revenge. It should not excite surprise that I venture not to determine whether they ought to be regarded as causes or effects. Both views may be maintained. They may also be called affections conjoined with repentance. But as Paul's meaning may be ascertained without entering into any of these questions, we shall be contented with a simple exposition. He says, then, that godly sorrow produces carefulness. He who is really dissatisfied with himself for sinning against his God is, at the same time, stimulated to care and attention that he may completely disentangle himself from the chains of the devil and keep a better guard against his snares so as not afterwards to lose the guidance of the Holy Spirit or be overcome by security. Next comes excuse, which in this place means not defense, in which the sinner to escape the judgment of God either denies his fault or extenuates it, but apologizing, which trusts more to intercession than to the goodness of the cause, just as children not altogether abandoned, while they acknowledge and confess their errors, yet employ deprecation, and to make room for it, testify by every means in their power, that they have by no means cast off the reverence which they owe to their parents. In short, endeavor by excuse not to prove themselves righteous and innocent, but only to obtain pardon. Next follows indignation, under which the sinner inwardly murmurs, expostulates, and is offended with himself on recognizing his perverseness and ingratitude to God. By the term fear is meant that trepidation which takes possession of our minds whenever we consider both what we have deserved and the fearful severity of the divine anger against sinners. Accordingly, the exceeding disquietude which we must necessarily feel both trains us to humility and makes us more cautious for the future. But if the carefulness or anxiety which he first mentioned is the result of fear, the connection between the two becomes obvious. Desire seems to me to be used as equivalent to diligence in duty and alacrity in doing service, to which the sense of our misdeeds ought to be a powerful stimulus. To this also pertains zeal, which immediately follows, for it signifies the ardor with which we are inflamed when such goads as these are applied to us. What have I done? Into what abyss had I fallen, had not the mercy of God prevented? The last of all is revenge, for the stricter we are with ourselves, and the severer the censure we pass upon our sins, the more ground we have to hope for the divine favor and mercy. And certainly, when the soul is overwhelmed with a dread of divine judgment, it cannot but act the part of an avenger in afflicting punishment upon itself. 
Pious men, doubtless, feel that there is punishment in the shame, confusion, groans, self-displeasure, and other feelings produced by a serious review of their sins. Let us remember, however, that moderation must be used, so that we may not be overwhelmed with sadness, there being nothing to which trembling consciences are more prone than to rush into despair. This, too, is one of Satan's artifices. Those whom he sees thus overwhelmed with fear, he plunges deeper and deeper into the abyss of sorrow, that they may never again rise. It is true that the fear which ends in humility, without relinquishing the hope of pardon, cannot be in excess. And yet we must always beware, according to the apostolic injunction, of giving way to extreme dread, as this tends to make us shun God while he is calling us to himself by repentance. Wherefore, the advice of Bernard is good, quote, Grief for sins is necessary, but must not be perpetual. My advice is to turn back at times from sorrow and the anxious remembrance of our ways, and escape to the plain to a calm review of the divine mercies. Let us mingle honey with wormwood, that the salubrious bitter may give health when we drink it, tempered with a mixture of sweetness. While you think humbly of yourselves, think also of the goodness of the Lord. End quote. 16. We can now understand what are the fruits of repentance, that is, offices of piety towards God, and love towards men, general holiness and purity of life. In short, the more a man studies to conform his life to the standard of the divine law, the surer signs he gives of his repentance. Accordingly, the Spirit, in exhorting us to repentance, brings before us at one time each separate precept of the law, at another the duties of the second table, although there are also passages in which, after condemning impurity in its fountain in the heart, he afterwards descends to external marks, by which repentance is proved to be sincere. A portraiture of this I will shortly set before the eye of the reader when I come to describe the Christian life. I will not here collect the passages from the prophets in which they deride the frivolous observances of those who labor to appease God with ceremonies and show that they are a mere mockery, or those in which they show that outward integrity of conduct is not the chief part of repentance, seeing that God looks at the heart. Any one moderately versant in scripture will understand by himself, without being reminded by others, that when he has to do with God, nothing is gained without beginning with the internal affections of the heart. There is a passage of Joel which will avail not a little for the understanding of others. Quote, Rend your heart and not your garments. Joel 2 verse 13. Both are also briefly expressed by James in these words, quote, Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. James 4.8 Here, indeed, the accessory is set down first, but the source and principle is afterwards pointed out, that is, that hidden defilements must be wiped away, and an altar erected to God in the very heart. There are, moreover, certain external exercises which we employ in private as remedies to humble us and tame our flesh, and in public, to testify our repentance. These have their origin in that revenge of which Paul speaks, 2 Corinthians 7 verse 2, for when the mind is distressed, it naturally expresses itself in sackcloth, groans, and tears, shuns ornament and every kind of show, 
and abandons all delights. Then he who feels how great an evil the rebellion of the flesh is, tries every means of curbing it. Besides, he who considers aright how grievous a thing it is to have offended the justice of God, cannot rest until, in his humility, he have given glory to God. Such exercises are often mentioned by ancient writers when they speak of the fruits of repentance. But although they by no means place the power of repentance in them, yet my readers must pardon me for saying what I think. They certainly seem to insist on them more than is right. Any one who judiciously considers the matter will, I trust, agree with me that they have exceeded in two ways. First, by so strongly urging and extravagantly commending that corporal discipline, they indeed succeeded in making the people embrace it with greater zeal, but they in a manner obscured what they should have regarded as of much more serious moment. Secondly, the inflictions which they enjoined were considerably more rigorous than ecclesiastical mildness demands, as will be elsewhere shown. 17. But as there are some who, from the frequent mention of sackcloth, fasting, and tears, especially in Joel 2.12, think that these constitute the principal part of repentance, we must dispel their delusion. In that passage, the proper part of repentance is described by the words, quote, Turn ye even to me with your whole heart, rend your heart and not your garments. End quote. The fastings, weeping, and mourning are introduced not as invariable or necessary effects, but as special circumstances. Having foretold that most grievous disasters were impending over the Jews, he exhorts them to turn away the divine anger not only by repenting, but by giving public signs of sorrow. For as a criminal, to excite the commiseration of the judge, appears in a supplicating posture, with a long beard, uncombed hair, and coarse clothing, so should those who are charged at the judgment seat of God deprecate his severity in a garb of wretchedness. But although sackcloth and ashes were perhaps more conformable to the customs of these times, yet it is plain that weeping and fasting are very appropriate in our case whenever the Lord threatens us with any defeat or calamity. In presenting the appearance of danger, he declares that he is preparing, and in a manner, arming himself for vengeance. Rightly, therefore, does the prophet exhort those, on whose crimes he had said a little before that vengeance was to be executed, to weeping and fasting, that is, to the mourning habit of criminals nor in the present day do ecclesiastical teachers act improperly when, seeing ruin hanging over the necks of their people, they call aloud on them to hasten with weeping and fasting, only they must always urge, with greater care and earnestness, quote, rend your hearts and not your garments, end quote. It is beyond doubt that fasting is not always a concomitant of repentance, but is especially destined for seasons of calamity. Hence our Saviour connects it with mourning, Matthew 9, verse 15, and relieves the apostles of the necessity of it until, by being deprived of his presence, they are filled with sorrow. I speak of formal fasting, for the life of Christians ought ever to be tempered with frugality and sobriety, so that the whole course of it should present some appearance of fasting. As this subject will be fully discussed when the discipline of the church comes to be considered, I now dwell less upon it. 
18. This much, however, I will add. When the name repentance is applied to the external profession, it is used improperly, and not in the genuine meaning as I have explained it. For that is not so much a turning unto God, as the confession of a fault accompanied with deprecation of the sentence and punishment. Thus to repent in sackcloth and ashes, Matthew 11 verse 21, Luke 10 13, is just to testify self-dissatisfaction when God is angry with us for having grievously offended him. It is, indeed, a kind of public confession by which, condemning ourselves before angels and the world, we prevent the judgment of God. For Paul, rebuking the sluggishness of those who indulge in their sins, says, quote, If we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. 1 Corinthians 11.31 It is not always necessary, however, openly to inform others, and make them the witnesses of our repentance. But to confess privately to God is a part of true repentance which cannot be omitted. Nothing were more incongruous than that God should pardon the sins in which we are flattering ourselves, and hypocritically cloaking that he may not bring them to light. We must not only confess the sins which we daily commit, but more grievous lapses ought to carry us farther, and bring to our remembrance things which seem to have been long ago buried. Of this David sets an example before us in his own person. Psalm 51. Filled with shame for a recent crime, he examines himself going back to the womb, and acknowledging that even then he was corrupted and defiled. This he does not to extenuate his fault, as many hide themselves in the crowd, and catch at impunity by involving others along with them. Very differently does David, who ingenuously makes it an aggravation of his sin, that being corrupted from his earliest infancy, he ceased not to add iniquity to iniquity. In another passage also, he takes a survey of his past life, and implores God to pardon the errors of his youth. Psalm 25, verse 7. And indeed, we shall not prove that we have thoroughly shaken off our stupor until, groaning under the burden, and lamenting our sad condition, we seek relief from God. It is, moreover, to be observed, that the repentance which we are enjoined assiduously to cultivate, differs from that which raises, as it were, from death those who had fallen more shamefully, or given themselves up to sin without restraint, or by some kind of open revolt had thrown off the authority of God. For Scripture, in exhorting to repentance, often speaks of it as a passage from death unto life, and when relating that a people had repented, means that they had abandoned idolatry and other forms of gross wickedness. For which reason, Paul denounces woe to sinners, quote, who have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 21. This distinction ought to be carefully observed, lest when we hear of a few individuals having been summoned to repent, we indulge in supine security, as if we had nothing to do with the mortification of the flesh. Whereas, in consequence of the depraved desires which are always enticing us, and the iniquities which are ever and anon springing from them, it must engage our unremitting care. The special repentance enjoined upon those whom the devil has entangled in deadly snares, and withdrawn from the fear of God, does not abolish that ordinary repentance which the corruption of nature obliges us to cultivate 
during the whole course of our lives. 19. Moreover, if it is true, and nothing can be more certain, than that a complete summary of the gospel is included under these two heads, that is, repentance and the remission of sins, do we not see that the Lord justifies his people freely, and at the same time renews them to true holiness by the sanctification of his spirit? John, the messenger sent before the face of Christ to prepare his ways, proclaimed, quote, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 11, verse 10, chapter 3, verse 2. By inviting them to repentance, he urged them to acknowledge that they were sinners, and in all respects condemned before God, that thus they might be induced earnestly to seek the mortification of the flesh and a new birth in the spirit. By announcing the kingdom of God, he called for faith, since by the kingdom of God which he declared to be at hand, he meant forgiveness of sins, salvation, life, and every other blessing which we obtain in Christ. Wherefore we read in the other evangelists, quote, John did baptize in the wilderness, and preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Mark 1 verse 4, Luke 3 3. What does this mean but that, weary and oppressed with the burden of sin, they should turn to the Lord and entertain hopes of forgiveness and salvation? Thus, too, Christ began his preaching, quote, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Mark 1 verse 10. First, he declares that the treasures of the divine mercy were opened in him. Next, he enjoins repentance. And lastly, he encourages confidence in the promises of God. Accordingly, when intending to give a brief summary of the whole gospel, he said that he behaved, quote, to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations. Luke 24, verses 26 and 46. In like manner, after his resurrection, the apostles preached, quote, Him has God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Acts 5, 31. Repentance is preached in the name of Christ when men learn, through the doctrines of the gospel, that all their thoughts, affections, and pursuits are corrupt and vicious, and that, therefore, if they would enter the kingdom of God, they must be born again. Forgiveness of sins is preached when men are taught that Christ, quote, is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, that on his account they are freely deemed righteous and innocent in the sight of God. Though both graces are obtained by faith, as has been shown elsewhere, Yet, as the goodness of God, by which sins are forgiven, is the proper object of faith, it is proper carefully to distinguish it from repentance. 20. Moreover, as hatred of sin, which is the beginning of repentance, first gives us access to the knowledge of Christ, who manifests himself to none but miserable and afflicted sinners, groaning, laboring, burdened, hungry, and thirsty, pining away with grief and wretchedness, so, if we would stand in Christ, we must aim at repentance, cultivate it during our whole lives, and continue it to the last. Christ came to call sinners, but to call them to repentance. He was sent to bless the unworthy, but by, quote, 
turning away every one from his iniquities. The scripture is full of similar passages. Hence, when God offers forgiveness of sins, he in return usually stipulates for repentance, intimating that his mercy should induce men to repent. Quote, Keep ye judgment, saith he, and do justice, for my salvation is near to come. End quote. Again, quote, The Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob. End quote. Again, quote, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found, call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. End quote. Quote, Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. End quote. Here, however, it is to be observed that repentance is not made a condition in such a sense as to be a foundation for meriting pardon. Nay, it rather indicates the end at which they must aim if they would obtain favor, God having resolved to take pity on men for the express purpose of leading them to repent. Therefore, so long as we dwell in the prison of the body, we must constantly struggle with the vices of our corrupt nature, and so with our natural disposition. Plato sometimes says that the life of the philosopher is to meditate on death. More truly may we say that the life of a Christian man is constant study and exercise in mortifying the flesh until it is certainly slain, and the Spirit of God obtains dominion in us. Wherefore, he seems to me to have made most progress, who has learned to be most dissatisfied with himself. He does not, however, remain in the miry clay without going forward, but rather hastens and sighs after God, that, engrafted both into the death and the life of Christ, he may constantly meditate on repentance. Unquestionably, those who have a genuine hatred of sin cannot do otherwise, for no man ever hated sin without being previously enamored of righteousness. This view, as it is the simplest of all, seemed to me also to accord best with Scripture truth. 21. Moreover, that repentance is a special gift of God, I trust is too well understood from the above doctrine to require any lengthened discourse. Hence the church extols the goodness of God, and looks on in wonder, saying, quote, then has God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Acts 11, verse 18. And Paul enjoining Timothy to deal meekly and patiently with unbelievers, says, quote, If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil. 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26. God indeed declares that he would have all men to repent, and addresses exhortations in common to all. Their efficacy, however, depends on the spirit of regeneration. It were easier to create us at first than for us by our own strength to acquire a more excellent nature. Wherefore, in regard to the whole process of regeneration, it is not without cause that we are called God's, quote, workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2 verse 10. Those whom God is pleased to rescue from death, he quickens by the spirit of regeneration. Not that repentance is properly the cause of salvation, but because, as already seen, 
it is inseparable from the faith and mercy of God. For, as Isaiah declares, quote, The Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob. End quote. This, indeed, is a standing truth, that wherever the fear of God is in vigor, the Spirit has been carrying on his saving work. Hence, in Isaiah, while believers complain and lament that they have been forsaken of God, they set down the supernatural hardening of the heart as a sign of reprobation. The apostle also, intending to exclude apostates from the hope of salvation, states, as the reason, that it is impossible to renew them to repentance. Hebrews 6, verse 6. That is, God, by renewing those whom he wills not to perish, gives them a sign of paternal favor, and in a manner attracts them to himself by the beams of a calm and reconciled countenance. On the other hand, by hardening the reprobate, whose impiety is not to be forgiven, he thunders against them. This kind of vengeance the apostle denounces against voluntary apostates, Hebrews 10 verse 29, who, in falling away from the faith of the gospel, mock God, insultingly reject his favor, profane and trample underfoot the blood of Christ, nay, as far as in them lies, crucify him afresh. Still he does not, as some austere persons preposterously insist, leave no hope of pardon to voluntary sins, but shows that apostasy being altogether without excuse, it is not strange that God is inexorably rigorous in punishing sacrilegious contempt thus shown to himself. For in the same epistle he says, quote, It is impossible for those who were once enlightened, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again to repentance, seeing they crucify the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. Hebrews 7 verses 4 through 6. And in another passage, quote, If we sin willingly, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment, etc. Hebrews 11 verses 25 and 26. There are other passages, from a misinterpretation of which the Novadians of old extracted materials for their heresy. So much so, that some good men, taking offense at their harshness, have deemed the epistle altogether spurious, though it truly savors in every part of it of the apostolic spirit. But as our dispute is only with those who receive the epistle, it is easy to show that those passages give no support to their error. First, the apostle must of necessity agree with his master, who declares that, quote, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. End quote. Quote, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Matthew 12.31, Luke 12.10 We must hold that this was the only exception which the apostle recognized, unless we would set him in opposition to the grace of God. Hence it follows that to no sin is pardon denied save to one, which proceeding from desperate fury cannot be ascribed to infirmity, and plainly shows that the man guilty of it is possessed by the devil. 22. Here, however, it is proper to consider what the dreadful iniquity is which is not to be pardoned. 
the definition which Augustine somewhere gives, that is, that it is obstinate perverseness, with distrust of pardon, continued till death, scarcely agrees with the words of Christ, that it shall not be forgiven in this world. For either this is said in vain, or it may be committed in this world. But if Augustine's definition is correct, the sin is not committed unless persisted in till death. Others say that the sin against the Holy Spirit consists in envying the grace conferred upon a brother, but I know not on what it is founded. Here, however, let us give the true definition, which, when once it is established by sound evidence, will easily of itself overturn all the others. I say, therefore, that he sins against the Holy Spirit, who, while so constrained by the power of divine truth that he cannot plead ignorance, yet deliberately resists, and that merely for the sake of resisting. For Christ, in explanation of what he had said, immediately adds, quote, Whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him. Matthew 12, verse 31. And Matthew uses the term spirit of blasphemy for blasphemy against the Spirit. How can any one insult the Son without at the same time attacking the Spirit? in this way. Those who in ignorance assail the unknown truth of God, and yet are so disposed that they would be unwilling to extinguish the truth of God when manifested to them, or utter one word against him whom they knew to be the Lord's anointed, sin against the Father and the Son. Thus there are many in the present day who have the greatest abhorrence to the doctrine of the gospel, and yet, if they knew it to be the doctrine of the gospel, would be prepared to venerate it with their whole heart. But those who are convinced in conscience that what they repudiate and impugn is the word of God, and yet cease not to impugn it, are said to blaspheme against the Spirit, inasmuch as they struggle against the illumination which is the work of the Spirit. Such were some of the Jews, who, when they could not resist the Spirit speaking by Stephen, yet were bent on resisting. Acts 6 verse 10 there can be no doubt that many of them were carried away by zeal for the law, but it appears that there were others who maliciously and impiously raged against God himself, that is, against the doctrine which they knew to be of God. Such too were the Pharisees, on whom our Lord denounced woe. To depreciate the power of the Holy Spirit, they defamed him by the name of Beelzebub. Matthew 9 verses 3 and 4 and chapter 12, verse 24. The spirit of blasphemy, therefore, is, when a man audaciously, and of set purpose, rushes forth to insult his divine name. This Paul intimates when he says, quote, But I obtained mercy, because I did it ignorantly in unbelief, end quote. Otherwise he had deservedly been held unworthy of the grace of God. If ignorance joined with unbelief made him obtain pardon, it follows that there is no room for pardon when knowledge is added to unbelief. 23. If you attend properly, you will perceive that the Apostle speaks not of one particular lapse or two, but of the universal revolt by which the reprobate renounce salvation. It is not strange that God should be implacable to those whom John, in his epistle, declares not to have been of the elect from whom they went out. 1 John 2, verse 19. 
for he is directing his discourse against those who imagined that they could return to the Christian religion, though they had once revolted from it. To divest them of this false and pernicious opinion, he says, as is most true, that those who had once knowingly and willingly cast off fellowship with Christ had no means of returning to it. It is not, however, so cast off by those who merely, by the dissoluteness of their lives, transgress the word of the Lord, but by those who avowedly reject his whole doctrine. There is a paralogism in the expression casting off and sinning. Casting off, as interpreted by the Novadians, is when any one, notwithstanding of being taught by the law of the Lord not to steal or commit adultery, refrains not from theft or adultery. On the contrary, I hold that there is a tacit antithesis, in which all the things, contrary to those which have been said, must be held to be repeated, so that the thing expressed is not some particular vice, but universal aversion to God, and, so to speak, the apostasy of the whole man. Therefore, when he speaks of those falling away, quote, who were once enlightened, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted of the good word of God, and the powers of the world to come, end quote, we must understand him as referring to those who, with deliberate impiety, have quenched the light of the Spirit, tasted of the heavenly word, and spurned it, alienated themselves from the sanctification of the Spirit, and trampled under foot the word of God and the powers of a world to come. The better to show that this was the species of impiety intended, he afterwards expressly adds the term willfully. For when he says, quote, If we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, end quote, he denies not that Christ is a perpetual victim to expiate the transgressions of saints, this the whole epistle, in explaining the priesthood of Christ, distinctly proclaims, but he says that there remains no other sacrifice after this one is abandoned, and it is abandoned when the truth of the gospel is professedly abjured. 24. To some it seems harsh, and at variance with the divine mercy, utterly to deny forgiveness to any who retake themselves to it. This is easily disposed of. It is not said that pardon will be refused if they turn to the Lord, but it is altogether denied that they can turn to repentance, inasmuch as for their ingratitude they are struck by the just judgment of God with eternal blindness. There is nothing contrary to this in the application which is afterwards made of the example of Esau, who tried in vain, by crying in tears, to recover his lost birthright. Nor in the denunciation of the prophet, quote, they cried and I would not hear, end quote. Such modes of expression do not denote true conversion or calling upon God, but that anxiety with which the wicked, when in calamity, are compelled to see what they before securely disregarded, that is, that nothing can avail but the assistance of the Lord. This, however, they do not so much implore as lament the loss of. Hence all that the prophet means by crying, and the apostle by tears, is the dreadful torment which stings and excruciates the wicked in despair. It is of consequence carefully to observe this, for otherwise God would be inconsistent with himself when he proclaims through the prophet that, quote, 
if the wicked will turn from all his sins that he has committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Ezekiel 18, 21 and 22. And, as I have already said, it is certain that the mind of man cannot be changed for the better unless by his preventing grace. The promise as to those who call upon him will never fail, but the names of conversion and prayer are improperly given to that blind torment by which the reprobate are distracted when they see that they must seek God if they would find a remedy for their calamities, and yet shun to approach him. 25. But as the Apostle declares that God is not appeased by feigned repentance, it is asked how Ahab obtained pardon, and averted the punishment denounced against him, 1 Kings 21, verses 28 and 29, seeing, it appears, he was only amazed on the sudden, and afterwards continued his former course of life. He, indeed, clothed himself in sackcloth, covered himself with ashes, lay on the ground, and, as the testimony given to him bears, humbled himself before God. It was a small matter to rend his garments while his heart continued obstinate and swollen with wickedness, and yet we see that God was inclined to mercy. I answer, that though hypocrites are thus occasionally spared for a time, the wrath of God still lies upon them, and that they are thus spared not so much on their own account as for a public example. For what did Ahab gain by the mitigation of his punishment except that he did not suffer it alive on the earth? The curse of God, though concealed, was fixed on his house, and he himself went to eternal destruction. We may see the same thing in Esau, Genesis 27, verses 38 and 39. For though he met with a refusal, a temporal blessing was granted to his tears. But as, according to the declaration of God, the spiritual inheritance could be possessed only by one of the brothers, when Jacob was selected instead of Esau, that event excluded him from the divine mercy. But still there was given to him, as a man of a groveling nature, this consolation, that he should be filled with the fullness of the earth and the dew of heaven. And this, as I lately said, should be regarded as done for the example of others, that we may learn to apply our minds and exert ourselves with greater alacrity in the way of sincere repentance, as there cannot be the least doubt that God will be ready to pardon those who turn to him truly and with the heart, seeing his mercy extends even to the unworthy, though they bear marks of his displeasure. In this way also we are taught how dreadful the judgment is which awaits all the rebellious, who with audacious brow and iron heart make it their sport to despise and disregard the divine threatening. God in this way often stretched forth his hand to deliver the Israelites from their calamities, though their cries were pretended and their minds double and perfidious as he himself complains in the Psalms, that they immediately returned to their former course. Psalm 78, verses 36 and 37. But he designed thus by kindness and forbearance to bring them to true repentance, or leave them without excuse. And yet by remitting the punishment for a time, he does not lay himself under any perpetual obligation. He rather at times rises with a greater severity against hypocrites, and doubles their punishment, that it may thereby appear how much hypocrisy displeases him. But as I have observed, 
he gives some examples of his inclination to pardon, that the pious may thereby be stimulated to amend their lives, and the pride of those who petulantly kick against the pricks be more severely condemned. End of section 9. Recording by Tricia G.